The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. I want to mention a great resource for writers, and this month's sponsor, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. I'll expound later in the show, but the short version is this long-awaited book about the craft of creative writing from New York Times bestselling author Steve Almond sets out to debunk the well-meaning but misguided myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and most honest work. Pick up a copy today of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, wherever you buy books, more soon. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something special. Rainmaker FM. Hey there, and welcome back to The Writer Files. I'm your host, Kelton Reed, and this week, the acclaimed New York Times bestselling sci-fi author, Richard K. Morgan, spoke with me from overseas about his winding journey from English tutor to bestseller, having his novel adapted for the small screen, what it's like to write for Marvel Comics, and his unique take on creativity and the writing life. Richard's best known as the award-winning author of the noir sci-fi novel Altered Carbon, a New York Times notable and Philip K. Dick award winner that was recently turned into a hit Netflix series. The author of the hard-boiled, carbon-black, futuristic thriller series, the Takeshi Kovach novels, including Altered Carbon, also writes the dark fantasy series A Land Fit for Heroes. His award-winning novels also include Standalone's Market Forces and 13, and he's the author of two volumes of Black Widow comics for Marvel, as well as the Crisis 2 and Syndicate computer games. His latest novel, Thin Air, is described as an atmospheric tale of corruption and abduction set on Mars, and it's a return to his signature hard-boiled sci-fi that the New York Times book review called ferociously readable. Join us for this two-part interview, and in part one of the file, Richard and I discussed his American literary doppelganger, the door that finally opened and dumped him onto the red carpet, how The Sopranos helped change the zeitgeist towards darker fiction, why luck plays such a huge part in success for writers, the author's hallucinatory visit to the set of the Altered Carbon Netflix series, and the two distinct DNA types of writers. Stay tuned. The Writer Files is brought to you by my friends at copyblogger.com. Words that work. Build your online authority with powerfully effective content marketing. Get superior content marketing education so you can build a remarkable online presence. Authors, bloggers, journalists, online publishers, and entrepreneurs, head over to copyblogger.com to learn more. That's copyblogger.com. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews as soon as they're published and leave us a rating or a review over on Apple Podcasts to help other writers find us. And welcome back to The Writer Files once again. I am 
excited today to have an esteemed best-selling author, Richard Morgan. Do you say Richard K. Morgan typically, or do you leave out the K when you're just <laughs> rapping with the uh, podcast? I, 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 typically, uh, <laughs> I typically don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a weird thing. I ended up with the, the K is because when I first got published, I wanted, I, you know, there are so many uh, science fiction authors on both sides of the Atlantic that have this middle initial, yeah. you know, Philip K. Dick, Peter F. Hamilton. Um, uh, there, there are more, I can't remember them all right now, but, and I just, you know, I, I wasn't particularly fussed about my middle name, but I did like the K. So I was like, Oh, can I be Richard K. Morgan? So my UK and my US publishers just went, yep, no problem, whatever you want. And then the UK publishers discovered that they were, the, the marketing decided they want to go with a very strong logotype led cover. And, the K was fucking up the um, the logo type, obviously, because you Richard Morgan, <laughs> you know, the K, there was nowhere to put the K. So they came back to me and said, look, is it all right if we drop the K? And I'm like, yeah, I, really, whatever works. It was a whim, you know. But New York never got the memo. So um, <laughs> so they went right ahead and published me as Richard K. Morgan, as I'd requested. Uh, meantime, in the UK, I was Richard Morgan. Um, and then just to complicate matters, there's a, there's a, a sort of, uh, you know, roving journalist at large in new york called richard morgan without the k uh, <laughs> and he's he writes sort of um you know uh, social commentary lifestyle pieces and he's he's gay and, and a lot of it has a lot of the the stuff he's written is, is about that that particular milieu and then i of course a few years ago i wrote a fantasy novel in which the protagonists were gay and <laughs> seriously the mess that we <laughs> got people <laughs> But yeah, so it's ended up just that way. I mean, in the US, I'm Richard K. Morgan. In the UK, I'm Richard Morgan. But it's, it's you know, uh, it's one of those things that you, you sort of feel like you should do something about, but you just never get around to it. And it's, <laughs> it's just fossilized in. There's nothing to be done. So he is not a master of hard-boiled futuristic thrillers. No, uh, no, no. He's, oh, he's, okay. he's a master of hard-boiled here and now. This is actually happening. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I mean, he, he's, I've read some of his articles because I inevitably sort of thought, well, what's going on here? And, you know, check them out. And he, he writes well. He's, you know, he's, he's, he's good at what he does. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, we're poles apart in, you know, in terms of what we do for a living. Yeah, that's a really good story. Well, let's talk about Richard K. Morgan, the carbon black noir uh, sci-fi writer. And, uh, yeah, before we talk about your, your latest fantastic book that is uh, – just come out thin air let's let's go back a little bit let's turn the clock back and you know you've you've got a pretty interesting story about how you came to become this new york times best-selling and award-winning uh sci-fi author um but if you want to roll the roll back the clock for us and kind of give us a little bit of background on how you got here before this uh altered carbon novel kind of changed your life yeah i mean i i uh I guess I've been, I mean, like J.K. Rowling always says that she, from the age that she realized there were such things as writers who made their living by writing stories, that was how long she wanted to be a writer. And that, that, that pretty much gets it for me as well. I mean, I can remember 11 years old telling my classmates that I was going to be a writer and make money from writing books. And they all laughed like drains. And... <laughs> And I, yeah, I mean, I sort of plugged away at it, but I wasn't very, I was, A, I mean, you know, character flaws, I'm extremely stubborn. I'm very, you know, once I get something in my head, very hard to, to you know, to sort of change course, get me to divert. And I had a very clear idea of what I wanted to write and list, didn't listen to any of the advice I was getting from the editors who rejected my short stories and, and so forth. And yeah, I just kind of kept plugging away and plugging away and plugging away and completely failing to get anywhere. 
because yeah, because I was, wasn't really treating it as a craft. I was treating it as as something that I liked doing. Mm. And if I couldn't get anybody to print it, well, that was their loss, not mine. Uh, that's fine for a few years, but you know, I, once I got over a decade of that, you're really starting to think, oh, I made a mistake here. And um, yeah, it was just one of those things that I I locked onto this this idea for you know the, the story of altered carbon, and wrote it got it and and uh you know eventually after a long sort of uh, time in the wilderness sending it out and getting rejections and so forth revising it still getting rejections eventually it got picked up and then it was just weird it was like so you've been bashing my head against this this what i thought was a brick wall for all those years and then suddenly it turns into a door and opens and just dumps me onto the red carpet uh you know full flat on my face on it uh because i got a three book deal from Orion in the UK, and then I get picked up by um, Del Rey Ballantyne in, in the US. I get a movie deal almost instantly. I mean, we wow. are talking within months of publication. Yeah. And, uh, and, I'm, and I mean, you know, movie deals a lot more common these days, I think. Uh, they tend to be with production companies, and they tend to be for not very much money because the production companies rarely have the money. It's usually, usually they have to go to the studios to get the money. Right. Uh, but this was. Uh, Basically, because through a, a chain of, of very lucky coincidences, I ended up being repped by somebody who knew some people who also knew some people who, who knew Joel, uh, Joel Silver. And so he decided this was going to be his next project and rang up Warner Brothers because you know, guys like Silver don't don't buy their own movies. You know, they, they get someone else to do the heavy lifting on that. So he just rang up Warner Brothers and by all accounts said to, said to <laughs> you know, this is going to be my next movie. Uh, option it. And so they did, and they optioned it at studio level budget, which, which was for me was it was about ten times no, it was about five times more money than I'd ever seen in an annual salary, and it just dropped on me from on high, wow. uh, and then continued to drop on me from on high every eighteen months for over a seven year period because they just kept renewing the option. Uh, project never really went anywhere, but yeah, so I kind of I say after all these years in the wilderness, it suddenly just bang. And, you know, why did that happen? I don't, well, you know, again, perseverance and stubbornness on my part certainly helped in the sense that I never really gave up. But also, I think the zeitgeist changed. Hmm. And, you know, what I, the stuff that I was writing back when I was writing in the, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, right through the 90s, really, I was writing this rather dark, rather grim, uh, you know, sort of noir-derived science fiction. And there wasn't really a market for that. The cyberpunk thing had kind of blown itself out, and mm -hmm. there was a lot, of, a lot of pastel shaded fantasy around. And there, I mean, there was science fiction still being written, but there, there didn't seem to be this particularly dark vein. And I get kicked back a few times for short stories and things by people who are basically saying, "Yeah, look, we, you know, you write well, you, we like your writing, but we, we just can't sympathise with these characters." Uh, <laughs> and it's like, well, that's kind of the point, you know. Uh, <laughs> um, but anyway, and I think what happened was that, yeah, towards the end of the 90s, uh, there was this kind of darkening of the zeitgeist. And we suddenly got much more interested in these, you know, very flawed characters and, and their behaviors. And you get stuff. I mean, The Sopranos, I think, was a very big linchpin in that, uh, introducing this hugely sympathetic character who is fundamentally just a mafia thug. Yeah. And there was a whole, obviously, that you know, there was a whole slew of similar stuff coming out around the same time. And yeah, and I think that's what happened. So I was kind of, you know, I was standing there way off pitch and suddenly they moved the goalposts and it's like, oh yeah, hey, look, this this guy. And uh, yeah, so suddenly I had pole position and it all just took off like a rocket. 
uh, which is great. But I, I very often I get, you know, I'll get aspiring writers saying to me, you know, what, you know, what advice would you give me? And I'm like, well, I don't know. Be lucky, you know. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I can't really advise anybody because I, my, the path I took was was of my own making. It was a particularly bad, you know, difficult and and and, and stupid path. Sure. And you know, if it succeeded in the end, it was it was way more by luck than judgment. Uh, you know, I was just I just happened to be there in my beached boat when the tide came in, uh, and that's the problem. But I suppose there there is a truth in that as well, and that is you've you've got to accept that some of it is luck. And, sure. You know, so great, you've got a talent, you hone that talent, you sharpen your writing skills, you, you try to get better. But ultimately, you know, you can be unlucky and it just won't happen. Uh, or it will happen and you'll get crappy little deals with publishers that, you know, small presses that then go under and don't pay you. Or you know, There are so many ways it can go wrong for you. And say so people, it, you know, I find people look at me and they kind of think that there's a method in the madness and that, oh, you know, you can, you can, we can go down this path. And it's like, well, actually you don't want to go down my path because <laughs> it would make a lot more sense to go down a path that is shorter and more efficient and sort of, uh, you know, makes better use of your talents and your time and, you know, try that path. But I don't know what that path is because I've never been down it. Right, right. Earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers. Truth is the arrow, mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again. Author Steve Almond is a beloved professor at Harvard and Wesleyan and the acclaimed New York Times bestseller of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction. And in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed, where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books, and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. Well, I have to say, I mean, Altered Carbon is is uh, incredibly well-written, and I understand why it won so many awards and the Philip K. Dick Award and, and of course, was turned into this uh, Netflix series, which is uh, really something to look at, isn't it? Uh, how, much, how much... It's a uh, yeah, thing of beauty. It's a thing of beauty, as you say. Um, how, how did you get to... Uh, visit the set or do any, any collaboration yeah. with the uh yeah, yeah i i in fact if you if you wander over to my website there is um it's it's i think it's not the late it's not the latest post it's the 
previous post I made. So I don't, I don't blog there much anymore. I just I literally don't have the time. Uh, which sort of details my visit to Vancouver. And what happened was, yes, yeah, Skydance flew me out to uh, Vancouver where they were making the show. And I basically got a week of being shown around the sets and introduced to the, the cast and just generally hanging out. Yeah. And it was mind-blowing. I mean, it really, you know, you're standing, I was standing talking to Joel Kinnaman, you know, outside a trailer in the, you know, where one, near where one of the uh, locations was. And, uh, you know, it's like, shit, man, this is, I'm talking to Kovac. I, it's, you know, and he was very, he was very keen to get my take on the character because obviously the, 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 the show and the book are slightly different and the Kovac in the show is a little bit different to the Kovac in the book. And he was very interested in that. He was like, well, you know, so how do you see it? And how do you, and, uh, and we had this long involved conversation about, about who I thought the character was. And, you know, he, and it was just, I say it was hallucinatory. It really was. Mm. It was brilliant. And, um, you know, everybody was really, really nice. I mean, I get people sort of shepherding me around, um, the sets and you don't trip over that sit over here and, uh, and just <laughs> showing me that everything. And it was just astonishing. And then the other thing was, as you'll see, and if you read the article or the, you know, the blog post, I was obviously, I was jet lagged from coming UK to Vancouver. So I arrived and you're in this state of jet lag, which obviously is slightly hallucinatory anyway. And then in the midst of this, you're taken and sort of show, look, all these, these are your wildest dreams come true. Look, here they are. Uh, concrete. You know, they, they, that's the thing. They're taking me, walking me through sets that are constructions of things that had only ever existed in my head. Yeah. And it's like, no, I can actually touch this. You know, it's, they built it. And that whole sense, and plus, the, you know, movie making in itself is a slightly hallucinatory process in the sense that, like, for example, the sets, they're built in, they're not, you know, at, once you step off set, there's no, they don't bear any relation to each other in terms of where one set belongs. So a set that is the downstairs of somewhere else may actually be two floors up from the, the other set you know and so there's that also there's a kind of alice in wonderland feel to all of it as well and yeah i just had this week of walking on air but also just feeling like i've been bashed on the head you know i just yeah. Like, well. um yeah astonishing i mean it really was and so many super talented people you know uh the writers the producers the uh the directors the the cast yeah, yeah, and all the other people that you don't see so much of, you know, the people who built the sets, the the um, the AEDs, the the um, the gophers, the people who make sure that the you know the dry ice machine is spewing at the right tempo, <laughs> right. all that stuff. Amazingly talented people that they've managed to round up for this, and uh, yeah, it was just oh god, it was. I you know, if I could go back to my um, you know sort of. 18 year old self or you know whenever it was i sat down and started to really write seriously for publication and you know say come on what's your dream and it, i mean it would be that basically it's Amazing. like yeah uh so yeah it was i mean it was non parallel it really was i i i have no words really to describe it you read, read the blog post it uh, it, yeah. it covers in in detail uh, but fantastic. It was, you know, experience of a lifetime, that alone. Absolutely. Well, I will, of course, point to your website, your home base there, richardkmorgan.com. And mm -hmm. uh, listeners can um, follow along with that story. You can uh, just go to the news and blog tab there called the Jet Lag Dream is, is the uh, yeah, that's it. Of that fragments of a Jet Lag Dream. Um, and uh, yeah, so um, we can find um, 
links to all of your uh, books there, the different series and a couple of the standalones. And then, um, of course, you, you've worked on uh, comics as well uh, in the Marvel Universe. How was that? Yeah. What was that like? That was great. I Marvel are really great to work for. I mean, you know, they pay on time. Uh, they paid me very well, given that I was a novice to the to the form. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was a very pleasant experience. I had a really great editor as well, uh, Jenny Lee. She, uh, although she was on her way out the door, actually. I mean, she she midstream on that. I mean, once we'd done the first the first uh, six shot, she actually left because she wanted to pursue a career in uh, video editing for movies. Uh, which was a great shame because we, we had a really great rapport and uh, she was very keen on what I was doing. And yeah, and Marvel really pushed the boat out despite the fact that it was it didn't sell. I mean, it, it you know, we, we started on about, I think, something like sort of 44, 45,000 uh, copies per, you know, per issue, per, issue, per comic. Uh, and we, by the end of the six uh, episode of the six the six uh, comics in that, what became then the first graphic novel binding, uh, we were down to about 28,000. And I mean, you know, that's <laughs> that's nobody's idea of a success story. So and especially, I mean, we were expensive as well, because I say they were paying me certainly what I felt was a very good uh, whack. And, you know, we had Bill Sinkovich doing initially doing the, the artwork and then eventually he stepped back and was, was doing finishes. But still, you know, he didn't come cheap. And uh, and another guy, Goran Parloff, who was do, doing pencils and layouts. And again, Goran's a really talented guy and, and much in demand. So, you know, we, we, we were not a cheap project by any manner of means. And plus, we stirred up a lot of trouble because a lot of the things I wanted to do were sort of swam against the Marvel tide. And, and they were really great about it. I mean, they, they ran with it as far as they could and then a bit further. And as I say, we had a second graphic novel, uh, another six episodes. And again, that, that debuted at, I don't know, I, don't, I think we were at 30-something thousand. So we'd already dropped 10,000 from our high. And by the time we finished, I think we were barely scraping 20,000 copies. So, you know, at which point they just went, look, you know, so long and thanks for all the fish. It, it, you know, it was just one of those things. It's, you, you, they, were, they were not making any money and, uh, you know, they, they had to pull the plug. But they gave me a lot of rope. They really did. Yeah. And uh, so it was great. I had a really good time. I think Jenny Lee had a really good time. We, Goran, I've met him. I met him briefly when I was um, at a convention in, in Croatia and he he said he really loved working on it it was it was a great time I met Bill Sinkovich he came down from Connecticut to New York to meet me briefly um and he, he's a lovely man uh so he was he was great as well so yeah great experience but you know in terms of of commercial heft a bit of a bust really well as we turn toward uh talking a little bit about your process before we kind of dig into how you get it done um, what are you working on presently? You, you know, your new one is just out, Thin Air, this atmosphere tale of corruption and abduction set on Mars, um, which we can talk a little bit more about as well. But uh, what are you turning your attention to now, uh, aside from promotion and, and kind of making the rounds and doing the uh, tour? I've got, I mean, I'm, I'm the, the um, Thin Air's planned as the, it was a sort of like the opening salvo. I, hopefully there'll be a few books with this character and, and these scenarios. So at the moment I'm in the planning stages of a sequel to it. Excellent. You know, and uh, I don't want to say too much about that because that'll spoil some of what's in, in Thin Air itself. <laughs> um, so that, there's that, that's up on blocks and being, being worked on as we speak. Yeah. At the same time, Dynamite Comics have, uh, are, are going to bring out um, a standalone Kovach graphic novel uh, that oh, cool. I 
and I was I didn't write that I was the showrunner on it so they, they they've got one of their own writers doing doing the story and I've been aboard to basically sort of make sure that it toes the line as far as the the universe is concerned the the law of of the Kovacs universe what what can and can't happen and so forth and then we've traded back and forth a bit of the writing so I mean at one point this guy Rick Hoskin he's the writer he asked me to come in and guest a couple of pages at one point and uh, and then later on we're sort of back and forth on how the dialogue works and you know we're tweaking the story left and right so I mean it's very much been a collaborative process so there's that as well I say I've, I've been I'm still sort of plugged into that we're nearly done I mean there's, it's largely written we're, we're working on the artworks going on now and so there's there's obviously feed, feedback to be had on that uh, and that's due out early next year I think sometime maybe April something like that yeah. uh, so there's that I'm I'm still contractually I'm I'm down as a consultant for the show and obviously we got renewed for a second season so uh, there'll be some involvement there at some point as well so yeah there's enough going on you know <laughs> keeping busy amazing amazing well aside from figuring out how you stay sane uh let's talk a little bit about your just productivity as a writer so um how much how much research is going into a novel like thin air well uh thin air is a little bit unusual for me in the sense that it it had its genesis in some ideas I had way back when I was writing a previous another novel thirteen it was called thirteen in the U.S. it it was called Black Man in uh, in the U.K. and that came out in two thousand seven and at the time that's a book it, it's in the same universe as Thin Air but that was a book set almost exclusively on Earth but there was a Mars colony and we get flashback references to it in the story but you never really go there and I was aware at the time that. I mean, that was fine. It suited my purposes. I wanted the focus to be Earth-based. But at the time, I was conscious of the fact that it's like, wow, you've got this whole colony on Mars and you're, you're kind of hinting about what it's like, but you're not, we're not going there. And that, that might really be cool to do. So even back in 2007 and, you know, as the book came out and was finished, I was already thinking about what, what a story based on in that Mars colony might look like. And there are a few little hints in in Black Man or Thirteen where things that have then found their way into uh, the uh, into thin air. Uh, but then I, I started writing fantasy. I'd also been contracted by publishers had signed me up for um, three fantasy novels, and I so I got on with writing those. And all the time that I was the, originally we were going to alternate. I was going to do one fantasy, one SF, one fantasy, one SF. When the first fantasy novel came out, it's called The Steel Remains. It got quite a lot of accolades and, and good press. So my editor sort of said to me, look, would you mind terribly if you just did the, the three fantasy novels straight off? And I was having a good time with fantasy because I'd not written it before. So I'm like, yeah, fine, whatever. But, yeah, so it was three books. It took longer to do than I thought it would. And all that time, thin air was kind of marinating in the back of my head. Uh, and I'd done a bunch of research about Mars when I was writing Black Man. So there was that research that's still sitting there. More research on and off. As I, I, I don't tend to do conscious research in the sense of actually go right now. I need to learn something about X. Mm -hmm. Let's read some books on it. What will tend to happen is that I will be browsing the web, or I'll be wandering about in a bookshop or something, and you'll see I'll see a book and think, oh, this looks interesting. I mean, a, you know, nonfiction book, and you think, ah, oh, this looks interesting. Hmm. You take it away and you read it and you digest it, and then later on, some of that stuff it becomes apparent how you can do something with it. And over time, you lay down a kind of, like a sort of silt, a sediment at the base of your of your brain of all this stuff that you've read about and acquired and sort of semi-acquired. 
and, and then that becomes useful while you're writing. So you're sitting and you're writing and you say, oh, yeah, you know what? I could use that thing I learned about um, about how to make foam, uh, foam technology. Yeah, that will pull that in. Uh, or, yeah, I was reading that article about the, you know, the politics of um, property ownership on Mars. Have a look at that again. We'll see what we can do with that. So it's 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 a much more organic process than I guess some some more focused writers mm-hmm. may have. Yeah, it's not something I can recommend because I mean it is painstakingly <laughs> slow. Because you very often I'll find that I've written myself into a corner. And I'm like shit. Now I need to know something about you know low gravity and what it does to your blood or something like that. So then I have to go away and do a bunch of research and then feed that back. And so so it, it, I cannot recommend it as a as a pro, as a working process. It, it it's very halting and stop and start and very slow. So for someone who's wanting to bang out a book a year or or, or at least or better. I can't recommend it. Don't go down that road. <laughs> um, okay. But, but you know, I think it's it's one of those things. I mean, I've you know, having met a lot of authors now, we do seem to divide roughly into two camps. There are the ones who plan very carefully and then get on and write. And there are the ones like me who will just sort of start writing and then go, ah, oh, shit, I need a plan for this, don't I? And cobble it together on the fly. Um you know, and I don't know that you can change that to a very great extent. I mean, I, I try to plan more these days. You know, with age, mm. I've become a bit more, a bit, a bit more sanguine, maybe a bit, a bit less rapid out the gate. But I don't think you can change the initial, the, the initial DNA of what kind of writer you are. Sure. Uh, you know, not without killing the, the, the inspiration anyway, because I think yes, you, you could just be soulless about it and say, I need, I need to write a book to make, to you know, to make meet my contractual obligations. Here I go, type, 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 type. You know. If that were my professional life as a writer, I might as well work in something more lucrative like banking, you know? Interesting, interesting. So, yeah, I mean, I've heard it called, you know, kind of that, the tale of the pantsers versus the planners. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, and and there's no wrong way, obviously, to get the words onto the page when you're succeeding and, and creating work. So when you're on a deadline, what what do you have any methods of madness that kind of you know get you into the chair and get you working and and oh yeah panic panic <laughs> I no I mean one one Perfect. thing I have found is quite productive uh, is that we I, I tend to my wife is Spanish and uh, we're trying to bring up our son bilingually so we we head out to Spain for a, a bus for a certain portion of the year every mm. year. When he, before he was school age, we used to we used to spend like two or three months a year every year out out in this part of southern Spain we know quite well, and uh, we still go out there. It's much less now because obviously he's at school, so that kind of cons- puts constraints on when you can go and for how long. But while I'm out there, there are we, there are some people who live down the road from where we stay, and they th- this woman um, is an artist of one sort or another. She's done all sorts of different kinds of art, and she's got a studio that she's sort of kind of locked up because she's not interested in that kind of art anymore. And they they they've lent very kindly lent it to me. So it, and it's really great because I'm just going to lock myself away there, and co- at least a couple of summers that where I've been really stuck and like I really got to get on with this book. That's what I've done. Is basically I've I've you know, get up, have breakfast with my family and then just wander up the road. And it's only 200 meters or so, but it's enough to separate you, you know, to give you the distance. Hmm. And then lock myself in this little basement uh, studio that that, uh, that she's got and just work, you know, hammer like crazy, write like crazy. And then later on you go out and obviously pick the bones out of it and, and, and try and shake it out a little bit. So I think it was Ray Bradbury who said that, how do you write? And he says, uh, throw up in your typewriter every morning and then after lunch you need to pick the bits out, tidy up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so that I mean that can that can work for me uh, under certain circumstances. 
Uh, but I'm not a fast writer at all, and I, I really prefer to take a sort of slow, marinating process um, and just let the book put itself together over time. Unfortunately, I mean, in, in literary fiction, that would be perfectly acceptable. And I mean, you know, some of the literary, the, the leading lights of the literary fiction universe, they, you know, they probably, after 20 years of writing, they still probably got a catalogue half the size of mine. Uh, unfortunately, in genre fiction, whether it be crime fiction or, or um, fantasy or science fiction or even a romance, you know, the, the, the demands are a little more stringent and it, it tends to be, look, we want to book a year out of you, Sonny. And yeah. uh, I, I've been very lucky in that my publishers, both in the UK and in the US, have been very supportive of, of well, you know, we'd always rather have a better book late uh, rather than pushing you to complete something you're not happy with uh, just to get it out under the, under the gun. Um, and it's, so to that extent, I mean, I, I think it's probably fair to say that I deadline. I don't really have a concept of deadline, hmm. uh, at least not in my novel writing anyway. When I, I was moonlighting in the games industry for a while, and that's a different story. There you do tend to have deadlines, uh, although they're micro deadlines because you're never doing anything very big. You're, what you, the work you're doing is usually modular. So you need a cutscene, or you need, uh, you know, a character build or something like that. And you can go away and do that. And it'll probably only take you a couple of afternoons. Uh, and then you, send it away like okay how do you, is this okay you get it signed off and that's it you're done that little packet is, hmm. is off on the conveyor belt but that's obviously a lot different than um than, than writing a novel uh so there yeah deadlines of that sort have been fine and and to be honest when i was working for marvel it was rather the same thing that, that each each issue had to be in by a certain deadline because obviously it had to hit the stands at a certain time uh and that was that was interesting. That was a bit of a challenge at times. Uh, there was, I was I was off traveling around um, Peru and Bolivia, and they they wanted to get this uh, issue put to bed, and they couldn't find me. And I, my, Jenny Lee was chasing me around <laughs> South America. This 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 poor guy from FedEx or UPS, because like, this is way before you know the the levels of internet connection that we that we've now got. And yeah, this poor this poor courier, like he's chasing around with these with these you know, uh, rough draft sheets of what, the, of what the comic is for my commentary. And they, he kept showing up at these hotels and hostels and like, no, he's gone, man. He's, he's across the border now. He's in Bolivia. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, that was, that was a lot of fun. I mean, like I said, I, 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 we did have a lot of fun on that, on that gig. Um, you know, albeit rather at Marvel's expense, because as I say, I don't think they, they ever really made their money back. Um, so, yeah, I can do deadlines in a pinch, uh, but I don't tend to for novels. The novels tend to come, you know, as and when they're ready. Hmm. Hmm. That's pretty interesting to learn. So have you run up against writer's block ever or is that? Uh... Nah, that's no such thing. It's not. I mean, there, there's writer's block in the sense that, yeah, there are days when you sit down and you just don't feel like it or you can't, you know, you're writing and what you're writing is shit. But I mean, that's not writer's block. That's just you're having a bad day. You know? <laughs> right. And uh, I mean, it's and I say I do I do I do think it's a, the, the whole concept of writer's block, I think, is a bit self-indulgent uh, because you can write, you know, you, OK, so you're not writing up to the standard you're happy with you're, what you're writing. You don't especially like tough. Get on. Write it. You can always go back and revise it at a later stage. You know, um, I, I've had occasional I've had moments where I'm like, oh, no, I've got writer's block. And you just kind of slap yourself around the face. You go, no, you don't. You're just sitting here. <laughs> Get on and write, and you write it, and then yeah, you like say you look at it on the page, you go, ah, this is rubbish. I God, I, you know, um, but that's the process. I mean, that is part of the process. I think mm. it'd be very unreasonable to, you know, as a as any kind of creative, to be honest, 
to expect that your art will just kind of flow out of you onto the, the canvas. Uh, hmm. You know, yeah, some days are like that. Um, but as uh, Lawrence Block was known to say, you know, some days it flows and some days it's like trench warfare. And yeah, I think that's the thing. I think I, I say to call it writer's block and act like it's a kind of condition. I always found that a little bit self-indulgent, I have to say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How does uh, Richard K. Morgan unplug at the end of a, a long day uh, when you are under the gun? I, uh, I don't know the usual. I mean, I've got family now, so that kind of that's an instant unplugging. You know, you just go downstairs and play with your seven-year-old son. Mm-hmm. That knocks everything right out of your skull. Uh, <laughs> So, but uh, I, the, the truth of the matter is I spent a long time not being published. Uh, you know, I was, a, I was an ESL teacher for many years. And, you know, whatever they say, writing is an easy gig. Um, I, I love the thing that, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Ben Aronovich. He writes these uh, um, supernatural, uh, sort of like sort of vampire type uh, supernatural thrillers based in, in uh, London. Mm. Rivers of Blood was the was the first one, I think. Um, and, uh, yeah, he's fond of saying, you know, oh, God, writing, I, the only reason I do it is because it's so much easier than working for a living. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think that's I think that's a little harsh, but um, I know what he means. And, you know, a hard day writing, uh, there's no such thing, okay? I mean, you know, it's, yeah, yeah, you may put in a lot of time at the screen and your eyes may ache by the end of it and you might be a bit fed up because you don't seem to be getting anywhere, but that's not a hard day's work. Okay. You know, I've done enough other jobs to know what a hard, hard day's work is, and, and that isn't it. So I think, yeah, sure, sometimes you need to go for a walk or something, or, you know, or have a, you know, have a stiff gin and tonic or whatever it may be that, that, that sort of snaps you out of what you were doing. But I, again, a lot of this crap about, about, you know, how hard the writer's life is, that, that's just not true. If you're, if you're a writer who is getting who is full time, because that's the first thing. I mean, a lot, a lot of writers uh, just never get the chance. They are, you know, they're published, they, their books sell, but they're just not making enough of a living to be able to go full time. And for those guys, yeah, that's it is really hard because you've got to do whatever's necessary to to make the rent, you know, and then you've got to find the time and energy to uh, to write. Those guys I have a lot of sympathy with. But if you are full time and you know successfully full time, making a living from it full time, then to be honest, I mean, it's it's great. You know, you write when you want to, where you want to, as much or as little as you want to. Yeah, you'll have deadlines, sure, but I mean, not not unreasonable deadlines. You know, uh, it's it's so. I, again, I do think there's an awful lot of of kind of uh, I don't know uh, French existential angst about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the truth of the matter is, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm not trying to pretend that that you know, that what I do, that the profession is, is actually just like making sausages. Cause it isn't, it's it, obviously <laughs> it does, it does depend on, on flow. It depends upon what's going on in you subconsciously. It's, it, it's, it's, you know, I still, I still don't really understand it myself, to be honest. I, I don't really know how I do what I do. So it's not that, but it's still that fundamentally, if it's working for you at the level where this is your full-time occupation, that life is so much more relaxed and, and, um, you know, low pressure than almost anybody else I know who's working for a living. Mm. Um, That that really, I I feel guilty complaining. I really would. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us for this half of a tour of the writer's process. If you enjoy the writer files, please subscribe to the show and leave us a rating or a review on Apple podcasts to help other writers find us. And for more episodes or just to leave a comment or a question, you can always drop by writerfiles.fm. 
and chat with me on Twitter at Calton Reed. Cheers. Talk to you next week. Thank you.